Hey, everybody, and welcome to the NASM CPT podcast and live webcast. So I want to say thank you so much for being here and joining us today. I really hope that as we're getting into doing some of these live webcasts, we're having, we're having guests. We're bringing guests on. And if you followed the podcast leading up to this point, we haven't really had guests. So there have just been information that's been delivered through me, I guess, as a filter. And what we're doing now, especially since we've started with our kind of nationwide lockdown and quarantine, is having guests on the show and providing perspective for things I really can't have the perspective to do necessarily because people are very skilled at what they do. And they bring a different environment, a different atmosphere, certainly a different perspective and a knowledge base that I don't bring. And so I'm happy to have my friend and uh, NASM master instructor, Tony Ambler, right with us today. So Tony, thanks for being here, man. Hey, thanks for having me, Rick. Really appreciate it. It's uh, good to catch up with you and see your face. I'm trying to think the last time I saw you was about six weeks ago at IDEA PTI. Yes, indeed. And uh, things have changed quite a bit since then. So. <laughs> they, yeah. they definitely had. This was the, I guess, the last <laughs> conference that had yeah. taken place, and it was in early March. So mm -hmm. it was just a week so before... Uh, at least in New York City, before the required shutdown, which happened on May 16th. Um, and so, yeah, man, that was it was right there. Big conference. Great to see a lot of fit professionals. Obviously, great to see you. And yeah. uh, me and you and Kyle Soul did a workshop together on um, assessments and foam rolling. So self-myofascial, um, uh, not release, self-myofascial techniques or self-myofascial rolling. And so we discussed that in, in there. And then I had Kyle on the show who did a great job sharing recently the research about self-myofascial rolling and, and different techniques and how they're applied. So, um, so today I want to talk a little bit about some kind of in a similar vein because we did just uh, work together on similar topics. But uh, I want you to just give a little brief introduction to yourself and um, kind of historically what you do and have done. <laughs> Uh, for work and with NASM. And then let's get into really the topic today, which is mix it all together. We look at everything we plan on talking about today. It's about improving movement and taking advantage of some of the opportunities that we're experiencing right now to actually spend time to do that. So please, just a little sure. bit about it. Sure. Yeah, it'll be a very little bit, but uh, I think <laughs> <laughs> similar to you, uh, about uh, years experience in the fitness industry and, and have worked, have been fortunate enough to, to have worked in a variety of different capacities. Um, I got my start in a large health club chain. And, you know, at, at the time that I got into the industry in the uh, late 90s and uh, early 2000s, you know, it was just such a, an exciting time in fitness. And, you know, that was been of, you know, functional training and a lot of the things that we take for granted today and that we see um, as very commonplace today were very novel back then. And so it was an exciting time for me to be able to get into the industry at that time. And, um, you know, in 2000, when NASM launched the NASM OPT model, um, I went through, uh, got my certification and, and the OPT model just made sense to me. And so I was very passionate and enthusiastic about applying that with clients and saw great success with it. And, 
you know, to that, I wanted to to educate for NASM and be a part of their team to uh, to be able to to help other trainers uh, realize the benefits of of utilizing a systematic progressive model to uh, to help their clients. And so, in 2005, I joined NASM as part of their master instructor team. Uh, not uh, too much before you, and um, uh, it's crazy that it's been you know 15 years uh, since then, but. Um, Actually, 15 years this uh, this month um, when when Wendy Marty and I came, um, and so uh, that uh, that opportunity with NASM led me to uh, led me to meeting my wife uh, Wendy, uh, who's also an NASM instructor, and uh, and that took me to Phoenix ultimately from where I was in California. Um, being in Phoenix, uh, got on with uh, another large health club chain, uh, still training clients and, and also doing some, uh, PT education and onboard. And at the time, you know, NASM had recently moved its headquarters from, from California to Phoenix and that afforded an opportunity to work more closely with, uh, with Dr. Clark and get some referrals directly from NASM, some client referrals directly from NASM. Um, and during that time, I, I started to learn more about uh, how they were implement, implementing the, the NASM methodology and, and corrective exercise strategies, if you will, in professional synapse. And, and that exposure um, really uh, piqued my interest and curiosity, and I wanted to learn more. And so from there, started working with, uh, with some athletes, implementing OPT, corrective exercise, um, started getting into manual therapy, got a license in massage therapy to be able to do manual techniques and essentially apply the the systems and the model um the frame the same framework applies some different techniques that uh that would be reserved for for that type of uh professional and then uh from there um as a result of some of those experiences i was able to uh able to get some clients in in full uh excuse me clients in professional sports full-time so Ended up doing some consulting with some NBA athletes, um, Major League Baseball. Spent quite a bit of time in New York. Um, yeah, so we got to catch up a little bit. That's right. Yeah, so I lived in lived in New York for what amounted to uh, about two and a half years, and then um, after doing that more on a consulting basis, I ended up uh, getting on board with a company called Fusionetics in 2013, which was founded um, by Dr. Mike Clark. And uh, at its core, you know, basically it was a technology, it's a technology company that allows you to perform the assessments that, uh, that we utilize and promote at NASM, as well as the programming with a variety of different clients. And so um, most recently in my position with, uh, with Fusionetics was uh, more of a training and development role, education and curriculum development. Um, and so I was with them for, uh, for about seven years. So, and that's a, uh, Kind of leads us to to where I am today. Um, Just so stuck still in the living room. Stuck, yeah, stuck in the living room, homeschooling. Uh, you know, it's been it's been an interesting ride, but uh, yeah, I think the you know the great thing is, the, and and we talk about this a lot, is that with the OPT model, the corrective exercise continuum, it provides a, a fantastic framework for of all levels to be able to impact their clients. Uh, impact and impact clients of all levels, right? We we've seen we've seen it this uh, with your um, client who's brand new to, to fitness and exercise, or who's coming off 
of rehab uh, and uh, seen it use all the, the highest levels of sport with uh, the best athletes on the planet. So I think, you know, that's something that, uh, you know, we should continue to, uh, to highlight and promote because uh, there's some misconceptions around, uh, around what corrective exercise is sometimes, as well as the, the OPT model and, and how best leveraged with, uh, with the clients you work with. Let's talk about the OPT model for a little bit. So there, there are a couple of things that come up with the OPT model. I think it's pretty interesting. Um, a lot of people talk about how rigid the OPT model is, and yeah. I can't help but kind of smile a little bit when I think about the numerous other training protocols that are so generally very narrow and they don't actually provide a system that leads from one thing to the next and uh, doesn't guide through periodization. And the other thing I'd tell people is, look, this is a base level certification, right? Like mm -hmm. there is more, otherwise there would be no need to go back to school or to find some other special ones. There's always more that you sure. can apply to the model and that you can apply the model to. So mm -hmm. people get kind of, you know, they get, they look at it and some people look at it and they say, man, this is the greatest thing ever. And, and I agree with you, it is an incredible model, but it's also the opportunity to take what you're interested in and find out really what what's a place that I can implement it instead of saying, I think doing this exercise looks really cool. I don't mm -hmm. know who could do this exercise or when somebody could do this exercise. And, and the model actually allows for that to be put into a system as opposed to just put into an exercise routine and say, I think this is cool and I think you like it, but you know, I think it's cool, I think he likes it, and it fits into what our outcome is based on our strategy. So yep. can you speak a little bit to the OPT model and, and how, first of all, it's, their suggestions, not dogma, right? Like right. They're, they're guidance that we can follow and then how people can start implementing it because you use it really with some of the best and top athletes and, and, and I know some of the highest paid athletes in the world uh, yeah. who you were working with primarily when you were living in New York City. So if you could uh, just speak to that for a moment. Yeah, you know, um, to me, OPT means options um, and the uh, one thing that the trainers, I think, uh, what gets lost on trainers sometimes is that you know the basics work, um, and if you do the basics really well, nice. um, you're going to see some tremendous results with your clients. I think we're always we get into the habit of always looking for the the best new thing, and we lose sight of the basics and the principles and the science that ultimately allows the body to uh, to change and and adapt to an exercise program. And so, yeah, there's the OPT model provides a, a structure, um, that you can use to find and implement a program by no means is, is there only five ways to train a client, uh, and apply the multitude of variables that, uh, that you can consider when, when performing exercise. But we know that, you know, there are some pretty, there are some pretty solid adaptations that can occur from applying the exercise variables in a certain way. And for many people, that's going to be more than enough to get them to where they want to be. And if you understand the principle, understand the intention behind each phase in the OPT model, to your point, and, you know, we've talked about this a lot um, on the instructor team is that um, essentially you're, 
your options are limitless at that point if you understand the principles. And so, um, again, it, it goes back to, as you mentioned earlier, figuring the right place within that system to be able to maximize the effectiveness of whatever exercise, tool, technique, um, strategy it is that, that you want to employ with your clients. And so, um, you know, that's something that can't be home enough. And, um, you know, hopefully we can, we can get, uh, trainers, um, not only new to the industry, but those who've been in the industry for a while to, to be able to recognize that and that it's not dogmatic. Uh, and really it just, uh, I think, uh, affords you the freedom to be able to do anything that you want with your clients. And, and that's really cool. That's awesome. I, I love that when you're working with athletes in particular, who you've spent a lot of time with, um, that nothing really takes place without an assessment. And sure. there are numerous assessments. I know that sometimes people think NASM only knows one assessment. Uh, <laughs> and, and there is a lot of great value in the overhead squat assessment. But can you speak at least through some of the um, evidence of both the overhead squat assessment, and then can you start to talk about some of the other assessments that are utilized and that trainers even could utilize in order to know what they're supposed to do or how to optimize outcomes when putting together an exercise strategy? Sure, sure. Yeah, I think, you know, there's there's hundreds of assessments that you could do with a client, but ultimately you have to find that balance between effectiveness and efficiency, as well as utility. No point in doing an assessment and getting data if you're not going to utilize that to put a program together or to remeasure against uh, later on to establish uh, progress and validity in your, your program. And so, um, you know, while if you were to look at some of the, the early NASM materials and, and you go through the, the chapter on kinetic chain assessment, I mean, it was hundreds of different uh, assessments that you could do from, you know, uh, starts or balanced overhead squat, single leg squat, upper extremity testing, manual muscle testing, range of motion testing, and the list goes on and on. And all are useful. But what's interesting is we found over time that um, a lot of the data that you get from an overhead squat is very correlative to some of those other assessments. And so when we see compensations occur in a squat assessment, ultimately, and while it is maybe an oversimplification at times, it's a great place to start. You can always dive deeper. Um, ultimately, uh, a, a compensation can be um, can be attributed to a muscle imbalance, where you know one muscle may be relatively underactive or lacks the ability to control the the compensatory pattern, and another muscle is overactive and um, and uh, leading to that compensatory pattern, and so. Just with that simple perspective, uh, you can do a lot of things from a programming standpoint. And then if you implement a program based on that premise and things don't improve as, as quickly as you think they should, then you can always do additional assessments to maybe um, further drill down the root cause of what you're seeing or what your client is experiencing. And so, um, you know, there's, there's some really solid evidence um, around the overhead squat. Um, its implications in, uh, from a muscle activity perspective, a range of motion perspective, as well as a, a predictive, uh, as well as from a predictive standpoint when it comes to injury, um, 
you know, there was a, a recent study by Eckerd that showed that, you know, individuals who display movement profiles using the overhead squat and single leg squat that, um, you know, they display patterns that are more uh, highly uh, or that are more predictive of injury risk um, had a had a greater uh, incidence of injury occurrence. So uh, things like feet turning out, knees going in, uh, excessive trunk lean, maybe an asymmetrical shift um, during the pattern. Those are higher risk, uh, considered higher risk sensations. And uh, individuals who displayed those patterns during just a transitional assessment, like an overhead squat uh, and single leg squat, um, got hurt um, more frequently. And so uh, I, th I think there's some great utility in it. It's, a, it's an easy assessment to perform. You don't need any equipment. Uh, it doesn't take very much time. And to your client, if uh, you're not into a assessment process, it could just be part of a warm-up that you do with them. Um, you're observing them uh, do some overhead squats, and, and then you take that information, and, and you can tailor some programming specific to, uh, to what you see. And what we look at with that is it just gives an idea of which muscles may need to be folded and which ones exactly. may need to be stretched and which ones may need to be uh, go through these activation exercises. It's isolated activations because when they start to work with their synergist, maybe these muscles aren't doing as much of the job as they're supposed to and the synergists start to take over, which is right. where we get that phrase, synergistic events. So want to start to, to get these muscles to start participating more and then put together these integrated movement patterns so everybody can, can be on the same page and all of the, the orchestra can play uh, in harmony. So exactly. that being said, are some people, when, when we look at this, that, that are concerned that corrective strategies um, kind of get in the way of the workout. So mm -hmm. you you jumped in and you talked about it, but it honestly, it doesn't take long for people to implement a corrective strategy, like foam roll stretching, um, you know, uh, isolated activations before going into integrated patterns that actually seem more like a workout. Yeah. Um, can you just kind of talk to taking a moment um, what this looks like as a warm and how that supports uh, the movement and performance of athletes and your kind of traditional clientele. Sure, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, again, corrective exercise, just like any other form of training, can be applied in a variety of different ways and, and formats. And so, you know, traditionally we think of it and, and NASM, we try to promote it as uh, a targeted warm up strategy for your clients. We know that if a client compensates or demonstrates, uh, you know, um, particular patterns, that um, we want to try to do something about that in order to optimize their performance during their workout, training session, competition, et cetera. And so, with uh, with to a corrective program, taking the data from the assessment, as you mentioned, allows us to uh, to identify some muscles that could benefit from some rolling uh, in order to decrease their overactivity. Um, we can then follow that with some simple stretching techniques in order to, um, optimize the range of motion that a client can move through during their, their workout. And then from an activation standpoint, uh, that's where we can get into, again, just some simple exercises to help prime the, the body to perform later on. So, um, you know, these concepts, we know, for example, that if somebody, let's say somebody sits down all day. 
Uh, they'll likely display uh, limitations in hip extension range of motion because their hip flexors are kind of chronically, um, chronically short uh, throughout the day and, and may potentially lead to overactivity. Uh, we know that individuals who display limitations in hip extension have different activation patterns when they go to perform functional movement. So the, the activation ratio between the hamstrings and glutes, for example, changes in individuals who display less than ideal hip extension. And so based on that premise, you know, that, that, that basically validates the, the concept of altered reciprocal inhibition, which we talk a lot about in, in our materials. But if we're trying to optimize a client's performance during their workout, make sure they want to get the most out of their session, um, if we know they've been sitting down all day or from their assessment, we recognize that they, they display patterns that are consistent with overactivity in their hip flexors, it's our responsibility to, uh, to do something about that prior to training and, and give them some tools and resources to be able to uh, take responsibility for that on their own too. But um, to your point, if we just had somebody go perform their workout and they've got overactive flexors, let's say they've communicated or shared with you, shared with you that they want to, uh, you know, improve uh, the uh, the aesthetics of their rear end, um, which you know isn't uncommon. Um, you can do all the the glute exercises you want, um, but if if that altered reciprocal inhibition scenario is there, then you know you're not going to be maximizing the performance of those muscles. You're going to be working more of your lateral hamstring and your your adductor magnus. And so it ties back into client results, and that's our job is to help uh, facilitate and um, get our clients to where they they've expressed they want to be. So, you know, how long really does it take to do three foam roll exercises? You know, it takes a few. Some, you know, if you do some lengthening techniques might take another couple, uh, couple minutes. And then from an activation standpoint, it's just, you're, you know, you're doing core, you could do some core stabilization work. You could do some hip activation work, which, um, you know, we know that doing a targeted glute warm up, um, study by PAR in 2017 showed that, uh, you know, when you do a targeted glute warm up, that it leads to better neuromuscular efficiency later on in the workout. So essentially you can produce more power, more strength with less effort. You get, you get more efficient just by doing a little bit of activation on the front end of, uh, of a session. And so, um, I think people it's like, easy. What's that? I think people more with like, less effort. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, with athletes, it's the same, uh, optimize their performance. We want to make sure that they can move, uh, through the ranges of motion and positions that they need to, in order to, to perform at their, uh, perform well at their sport. Um, and so we would take them through a similar process, some rolling or, you know, depending on the environment, maybe some manual therapy techniques, um, in lieu of rolling, um, some hands-on, stretching or, you know, again, static stretching if they're doing it on their own. Then we would do some activations into a traditional dynamic warm-up process um, for them going and performing. So you're looking, you know, most of the research is that, you know, you can have an impact in as little as 10 to 15 minutes. And so I think, you know, targeting the warm-up specific to the client's assessment and the uh, training goals for the day or competition goals is going to be more effective than doing, you know, maybe more of a traditional warm-up where you're just uh, on a treadmill or elliptical or doing something to elevate the, the heart rate and get a little lather going on. So we're really putting the cl our clients in a position to be as successful as possible. Yeah, and I think ultimately, you kind of mentioned it where it's a responsibility. So if 
like we have the responsibility to provide um, the best workout in the safest manner possible, the most effective way, the most efficient way to do it. This is what people are paying us for. They're not paying yeah. just to make them sweat because you can pick anybody outside. Nobody's outside right now, but you can pick anybody <laughs> outside and say, I need you to make me work out so much. Right? I need you to make me sick. I work so hard. And and it doesn't take any education, take any skill set whatsoever. All it does is taking somebody to say, you've got an hour, go burpees. Right? Yeah. And then and then they just do that the entire time. Uh, and that you must be a good trainer because I burned a lot of calories and I sweated a lot. And mm -hmm. we that's not true. We'd never do that with one of your professional athletes or do that with one of our traditional clients. So when we look at it, really, if you can do better, it is your responsibility to do better. I yeah, mean, 100%. our fitness professionals, we are certified personal trainers. We receive education and too often people go, hey, man, as soon as I get this certificate, I can wad it up, throw it away because I'm, I'm, I'm legal now for training. Mm -hmm. And what they don't get is that they've so focused on the destination of becoming a trainer or the destination of training a client and getting a paycheck that they've not spent the journey enjoying that opportunity to learn what to do, to how to better do it. Um, and this kind of goes into the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Where mm. people who are really novice at something think that they're really, really good. And in the literature for Dunning-Kruger, it's, it's called the peak of Mount Stupid. And, <laughs> uh, so when, when we're at the peak of that, when we start to learn more, you see this kind of uptick and I learned a little bit, so now I'm a professional. And mm -hmm. then you see this slope all the way down here. And that slope, as it drops down dramatically, is called the slope of despair. Mm -hmm. and, and that basically says that I have learned enough at this point to know that I don't know what I'm doing. And I think, <laughs> you who just said, you've done this for 20 years. How often have you been like, oh my gosh, if I could just go back to when I was a trainer early on in my career and undo some of the things that I did <laughs> clients. And yeah. I know I've done it. I've, I've thought it many, many times. And, um, you know, they still enjoyed it. They still got value at it. But I can do better. Yeah. And as we start to do better, it's in Dunning-Kruger, it's called the slope of enlightenment. And we start to get smarter and smarter and and learn a little bit more, and we're in less and less despair about injuring or hurting. And you know, like, I don't know anything, but we always know enough to know that we don't know enough. And that's really when we get into that concept of being a lifelong learner, um, instead of always trying to be at a destination, instead of going to the destination. It's that journey. It's it. You know, when people talk about life as a journey, not a destination, is really what we're talking about. And and I want to drive home the importance of all the stuff that you've done throughout your career where it has been a journey, it has been working with mentors, it has been self-guided learning, it is, you've spent money and gone back to school multiple times to <laughs> learn from others. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, when we talk about, you know, certification and education, it's ongoing. Everything's mm -hmm. ongoing, so we shouldn't think that we we just do it and that that I'm good without all that stuff. 
because here's the thing that you could be better with all that stuff though. Yes, mm -hmm. maybe you're good without all that stuff, but could you be better? And at some point you have to look at it as a responsibility for, for us to do better, to get better and not just, um, it reminds me, so it's a Maya Angelou quote that I love very much from the book, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. And she's, she's talking about her mom and raising the children. And she said she did the best with what she had. And when she learned better, she did better. And that's, that's a roundabout way. It's not a direct quote, but that's basically it. When she learned better, she did better. Um, and here's the thing. So many of us learn better we gain the knowledge to something better, but it's too hard. It's too yeah. hard to apply it. Mm -hmm. And so learn new assessment techniques. We learn new models of training. We learn different forms of periodization. We learn a lot of different things, but that's not the hard part. The hard part is not the learning it or being exposed to it. That's not the hard part. The hard part is now taking it and making application to it. So yeah. we all learn assessments. We all learn these wonderful different things but the hard part is applying it. Fortunately for you, you've worked with uh, wonderful mentors. They apply it. That's what they do. They live their life applying these things. So you both learn it and see how it can be applied. And you're supported every day in that because you're around people that are doing it. Most people are not around other people that are doing it. You're not around people who are applying better efficient ways, peer-reviewed research. What do we do when we learn new stuff? So anyway, I just I want to, to just kind of speak to that because I know it's very challenging. It's always kind of cool to learn something new. And like people at the PTI conference from IDEA that we were just at, people come to our workshops. They love it and they love it and they can't wait to go home and do this with somebody on Monday. But unless they do it with several clients on Monday and a few more on Tuesday and more on Wednesday and more next month and more the following month, day by day, then it just kind of disappears into the background and we're still stuck with doing an hour's worth of burpees. Yeah. So I, I think these types of things, these applications are really important, not just to know, but to apply. No, absolutely. I think that speaks to the power of systems as well, right? I mean, if you you employ a system and you have a process in place, it makes it easier, I think, to uh, again figure out as you learn new things where to put them into your into your process and then consistently execute on that. And so, uh, yeah, hundred um, percent. The and systems. I'm sorry, Tony, but I just want to run into this real quick. Yeah. Um, because so many people are stuck at home, um, mm -hmm. it can be difficult to, to learn new things uh, when you may be by yourself. I hope people have roommates at least or family members that they're with because being home by yourself uh, is very trying. Uh, what are some of the things that they can do, some assessments that they can maybe learn or apply at home uh, and then the other question is, once you get an assessment, kind of talk through how people can apply assessments. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I think I went off on a, a tangent uh, before getting to that uh, to that point uh, earlier. So the uh, the overhead squat is is great, but um, there are other assessments that you can do that can help you narrow your focus when it comes to programming and um, 
And in turn, that makes your programming and program design more efficient and potentially more effective. So uh, if you can prioritize areas of the body um, to work on with a corrective strategy, um, that may require fewer exercises and techniques, and that's going to take less time for your client to be able to do, which may be uh, something that um, they're, they're all about. Hmm. Um, you know, fortunately, even uh, even if you don't have somebody at home, uh, the power of you know technology, you can you can learn and implement a lot of these things uh, over you know video and um, you know whether it's FaceTime, Zoom, uh, and so forth. And so I think you know you and I, um, in order in order for us to get more out of our assessment process, you know, we've utilized like manual muscle testing and goniometric assessment, which are extremely valuable, but reserved for a more clinical environment. Um, you know, using a goniometer, which uh, for those of you who may not be familiar, is basically a protractor type device that allows you to measure joint angles, um, measure different joint ranges of motion in different positions, uh, which can then give you further insight into what uh, tissues might be um, might be restricting a particular range of motion and in need of some some lengthening techniques, as well as what uh, what muscles may may be, uh, need more activation and strengthening work, and so you know very powerful. The the one thing with an overhead squat is that it's very reliable. Um, if you're looking at the the standard assessment form, um, it's a, it basically uses what we call binomial um, scoring. You you either see a compensation based on the criteria that uh, that's been provided or you don't. So the yes no format really makes it reliable both from a, an intra and interrater re reliability perspective. Um, but what you gain in reliability and sensitivity. And so range of motion testing allows you to be more sensitive um, in your assessment process and uh, really maybe uh, hone in on what, what might be the root cause of somebody's uh, impairments or compensations. And then if you attack that, then you see greater uh, change, not only locally at the areas that you're focusing on, but systemically uh, as a result of applying the program. Uh, well, you know, it takes a lot of time to learn how to use a tool like the goniometer. You have to have a goniometer, you have to have a treatment table, you have to have, uh, you know, ideally in order to get most out of it. And that's just not practical for uh, fitness professionals. In some instances, it may not be considered within their scope of practice. Um, you have to put your hands on the client in order to be able to do that. And so, you know, I think uh, what we've done in the, the updated version of the, the corrective exercise uh, specialist course is added mobility tests, which, you know, allow you to identify and, and assess a client's range of motion actively. So it doesn't really require you as the, the fitness professional to, uh, to put your hands on the client. You can do them in a virtual format. Right. As you talk a client through the different patterns, positions, uh, you can still gain a, a pretty good understanding of where their mobility might be restricted or limited. And um, it allows you to get a lot of the same benefits that you might from uh, goniometric assessment, but uh, in a format that's more scalable and more applicable across a, a variety of different environments. And so, um, you know, looking at things like ankle dorsiflexion specifically extension, hip internal, external rotation, hip extension, all the way through the, the upper extremity, um, again, allows you to really buy, okay, um, that foot turning out compensation that I saw during the overhead squat, is it caused by a lack of ankle mobility or is it uh, maybe due to uh, 
an overactive lateral hamstring um, that you would be able to identify during your knee extension assessment. Um, maybe it's due to an overactive TFL that's, you know, again, combined with the, the lateral hamstring causing the tibia to, to externally rotate. And so, um, you know, again, the, the mobility tests allow you to refine your, your program design process and, and ultimately the strategy that you give your clients. So I think, you know, one, if, if you've seen good utility with the overhead squat and you're looking for something more, those mobility tests are a great place to start. And I think if you, you know, you have a cohort of, um, of friends or colleagues and individuals that you can, you know, get on a, a video chat with, if they're not there with you in person, the, the format allows you to be able to, uh, to practice those things virtually because you're basically just visually identifying uh, against certain benchmarks um, what, that, what that person's range of motion is. Did that answer answer that part of the question? Okay. Answered so many questions. So right. thank you. Uh, we've got another question lined up for us. So Greg is on the other end here. Greg, can you give us uh, what the question is? Let's see what we got. Yeah, from the chat we have. Uh, what are Tony's thoughts on static postural assessments, such upper cross and lower cross syndromes? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, you know there's uh, there's some debate as to you know. If those syndromes truly exist, um, but I think uh, regardless of the terminology being used, there's uh, I think there's tremendous value in a static assessment. Uh, static assessments give you uh, some insight and give you a lens into how your clients spend the majority of their time. Um, the body is going to it um, to the positions and patterns and, and postures that are maintained most frequently. And, and so if a client does come into you and presents with a, cert, uh, a certain static postural alignment, um, that may give you some insight into, into how they're spending the majority of their day from a lifestyle or activity perspective. And um, while it may be useful in the program design process, it may also be useful from a behavior, uh, behavior modification perspective. If somebody is, you know, sitting in a position all day and, and they've experienced uh, not only some changes in posture, but maybe some other manifestations associated with that, you can coach them and guide them to, uh, to modify those positions throughout the day. And so how somebody presents to you statically doesn't always translate to their transitional movement patterns or dynamic movement patterns. And so that, uh, that uh, therein lies the value of doing additional assessments. Um, but it does give you some, some good insight and, and a great starting point to be able to to have that conversation with your clients on the the importance of what they do all day, um, their hour long session with you, maybe you know two to three times a week at most, is not necessarily going to be enough to offset the things that they're doing throughout the day. And so again, we have to uh, we have to reinforce some self efficacy with the client, um, yeah. reinforce that you know them improving and getting to their goals is, is just as much their responsibility as it is yours uh, as a fitness professional. Um, I've, I've got a couple of questions that I just want to, uh, some quick, some quick answer. Um, before we, Greg, just real quick, do we have any other questions that, that from the live chat that we want to address before I jump in? All right. So let's go with this. Um, because Greg mentioned uh, static posture, the first thing that I thought was asked was about static stretching mm -hmm. before exercise. So, Tony, 
Yes. This could make this podcast and web, webcast uh, about twice as long as it's already been. So with that said, I want a less than 30 second answer because too much of an answer will be too much for anybody to remember. Yeah. Static stretching prior to working out. I was told not to static stretch before exercise, but you are, are implementing this. So please explain 30 seconds and go. All right, static stretching. I think um, thing is we're not uh, NASM in particular. We're not recommending just arbitrary thing. Um, using an assessment to identify areas that could be in need of some lengthening techniques, and um, that's where static stretching comes into play. So you want to be targeted in your approach and and what you're stretching. Have a reason uh, and a method behind the madness, if you will. But ultimately, the research uh, is is fairly conclusive in that you know stretching, static stretches held 60 seconds or less won't have any uh, negative implications on strength and power outcomes. And if you follow a static stretch with a dynamic warm up process or movement preparation process, again, you're not going to see any decrements in uh, in performance measures that uh, that you might expect. I love it. Thank you. Nice. That was 37 seconds. Well oh, done. All right. Well done. Uh, Got to work on my brevity here. <laughs> that's the briefest I've ever seen you go. Uh, <laughs> let's do one more. And really, this is just speaking to um, stress. And there are a lot of people stressed out right now. A lot of elite yeah. athletes, when they get into a slump, it's not <clears throat> they rolled their ankle. It's because there's some mental cognitive thing going on. Uh, and I'm not saying that we need to uh, use exercise as a means to help those athletes get over it. But mm -hmm. what is the effect that exercise has on stress? What have you seen when you've worked with people? And how do what are some of these things like the the movement prep that we talked about early on? How are they beneficial for for stress reduction, not just orthopedically, um, mm -hmm. but also in other ways? Sure, sure. Well, I'll try. Uh, I'll try to address that as best I can. I think, you know, um, and, and I may uh, be a little tangential here in that, you know, everybody's under a lot of stress right now, um, you know, due to the massive uh, change in lifestyle for for everyone. And so, you know, when it comes to exercise and the application of a program in home, you might be limited by equipment, space, and uh, I think now is, a, is an opportune time as any to focus on things that you uh, traditionally might not focus on if you're working out and training at the gym all the time. So, you know, tissue health, um, movement quality, uh, things that, um, you know, people may uh, not typically have time for. Um, you know, now you do with very limited equipment and uh, and still see massive benefits. So, um, when it comes to corrective strategies and programming that focuses on improving the quality, uh, I think now is as good a time as any to uh, to really try to tackle that and and uh, make that a focus. Um, now, acutely, there are some things that you can do to reduce stress. So we know that foam rolling, for example, and, and Kyle's talked about this as well, foam rolling does have an impact on reducing sympathetic act, uh, nervous system activity. So if somebody comes in and they're all stressed out from the day and what went on at work and at home, um, just doing some foam rolling exercises can help um, blunt that sympathetic response uh, and enhance parasympathetic activity. 
which can be very important uh, to putting them in a good frame of mind for the rest of the training session. Um, if somebody's really stressed out, I mean, the first thing you could do is, is determine that, uh, ask them how they're feeling that day, um, mood state, how well they slept the night before, um, what their thoughts are, uh, their overall feeling of, uh, and, and uh, feeling of ready to perform. If somebody comes in and you can just tell they've had a crappy day, they're not uh, they're not giving you the impression that they're ready to get after it. Well, when it comes back to responsibility, um, you can modify what you had planned for the day with them. Maybe make it more of a restorative type, maybe lower intensity of the exercises. Um, or implement programming that's more movement focused. And so acutely, I think there's some benefits to, uh, to, to implementing some of the techniques that, that you would use in a corrective program. And then chronically, um, there was some preliminary, uh, preliminary work done um, uh, that shows that individuals who um, have, uh, who display lower movement quality. So Again, individuals who have movement profiles that uh, where they do compensations that are, are more highly correlated to to injury risk have higher level ha, have higher levels of uh, cortisol, circulating cortisol. So throughout the day, um, individuals who uh, move worse than somebody who displays you know ideal movement patterns, they have higher levels of circulating cortisol, which is a a, a marker of systemic stress, and so. Just by getting somebody to move better, focusing on enhancing their quality of movement, um, that may lead to a reduction in the systemic stress placed on their body. We also know that mechanically, individuals who move uh, with those compensation patterns experience higher mechanical loading during activity, which um, may not affect their uh, acute response to that training session, but over time could lead to uh, more chronic stress and an inability to recover from their exercise program. And, you know, we all know that exercise uh, is, isn't what gets you the, gets you the results. It's how you recover and respond uh, and recuperate from that stress. So. That's awesome. Thanks, Tony. Before we wrap up, I think we have one more question uh, and then let's, uh, let's close this thing up. Yeah. Karen, all right. Karen in the chat wants to know, uh, can you talk about knee position in squats and the risk to the knees if not uh, if they're not correct? Okay, I guess um, first have to define what's uh, correct knee position. Um, I think it, it's really accepted that you know we want to try to maintain uh, the uh, the patella or knee alignment uh, over roughly uh, the second and third toe. So. Uh, if we're looking at somebody during a squat, we want to make sure that that knee is tracking in line with the, the center of the foot, actually. Um, as the knee moves into more of a valgus position, let's say where the, the patella moves medial to the, uh, the second and third toe and maybe tracks more over the big toe or inside the big toe, you are going to increase uh, stress to the ligamentous structures of the knee um, as well as the underside of the patella. So... You know, for every 10 degrees inside the big toe that, that that goes, from a tracking perspective, you can increase stress on the ACL by 100% for every 10 degrees. And the patellofemoral joint contact is underneath the, the, the kneecap can, can increase 45%. So um, while that may not do anything if it happens uh, occasionally, um, 
if you have somebody who moves like that chronically under a load or at higher intensities and, and during more dynamic patterns, that could potentially lead to some problems later on. So uh, it's not that you want to always completely avoid those or can completely avoid those uh, or can completely avoid those positions um, because uh, the soft tissue system, connective tissues, they adapt just like anything else. And you can see hypertrophy in ligaments um, if they're put under the right amount of stress and allowed the, the right amount of recovery. But um, if you allow somebody to do those types of patterns chronically and repeatedly um, over time, that's going to lead to a breakdown, weakening of the of that tissue and, and could increase the susceptibility of a, of a non-contact um, type musculoskeletal injury. That's fantastic. Thank you for taking that, Karen. Thank you for asking that question. Well done, Tony. Well done. Thank you so much for being here and being a resource for us. Uh, it's greatly appreciated you on. Thanks for me. I appreciate it. It's good to good to see your smiling face. <laughs> I know we've had some text messages, but it's always good to catch up with you. And um, you know, I'm uh, I'm glad to uh, to have been a part of this. So thanks so much. And yeah, man, you are welcome. Give us to Wendy and the little one. I hope everyone well and staying safe. And uh, I want to say the same thing to everybody out there listening. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're staying safe. And uh, let's do let's make the most of what we can right now. What are the things that we can control and is an opportune time for uh, professional and personal development. So take advantage of these opportunities where uh, there's a lot of tragedy going on, there's a lot of sadness going on, there's a lot of uh, unknowns that are out there right now that make a lot of people nervous. But let's focus on what we can do, not what we can't, and move forward. So thank you again for being on the show. Thank you for listening. You're here as the NAMCPT podcast. Thanks, sir.